So I realize that we've used the word Advent uh, several times today and several times last week without ever actually telling you that the word Advent is from the Latin word. It means simply to come to. And so the king has come to us in his first Advent, and he's going to come again to us and for us in his second Advent. And the challenge is for us to live with an anticipation of that event, like to have the second Advent consciously um, in our minds. And it's very difficult to eagerly anticipate an action when you have no idea when it's, it's going to take place. And it's probably safe to assume that anticipating, like earnestly and eagerly, the return of Jesus is something that none of us probably do very well. Certainly none of us do naturally. So what I thought we would do uh, today in the sermon is I'd like to give you a couple of ideas, not a comprehensive list, but a few ideas of things, of ways that we can, you know, look forward with eager anticipation. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, very short text, and we're just bouncing off of a couple of ideas here. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now that is quite the promise. Um, let's pray together. Help us, Lord, to be awake, alert, looking for your coming among us this day. It's not something that any of us do well, but we are, are very interested in having you teach us and train us to do so for the future. Um, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, there was a psychology experiment. I think they did it at Cornell where uh, they, the researchers, they asked a group of young men and women to think about a purchase that they intended to make in the near future. And the idea is the researchers would check back in with them periodically and ask them to rate their sense of anticipation of that purchase. Now, there were two purchase categories they were working with. One is simply the purchase of a, a thing, stuff, like, you know, a laptop or new clothes or AirPods or, you know, a material good. And the second was an event, an action, activity, you know, concert tickets, Taylor Swift concert tickets, <laughs> kind of tough to come by, uh, ski lift passes, a trip. And the researchers, what they would do is they'd send periodic text messages to the, the test subjects and, and just ask them, like, are you thinking about it? You know, on a scale of zero to ten, how much are you anticipating it? They get to the end of the study. They've duplicated this one several times, so this is a pretty, pretty well um, established fact. Who, which, which of the two groups do you think had the greater sense of anticipation? The, the stuff people or the event people? Of course, it was the event. Um, it, it wasn't the material good. Um, every time that this study has been done, it was experiences, dynamic action, actions, which provide, you know, far more excitement. And isn't it interesting then um, how heaven has been characterized in kind of kitschy Christian culture, where we, we talk about our mansion up in the sky, or walking on streets, streets paid with gold, or, I mean, we have this, you know, the, the angel strumming the harp on a, on a cloud kind of thing, where, where heaven is oftentimes characterized as like a commodity, like my mansion, my name written in, the, you know, the golden bricks, that type of thing. And whenever it's characterized as an experience, it's a, a lame experience, at least in popular culture. You may have seen the 1989 classic, <laughs> All Dogs Go to Heaven, 
Uh, here we have, they actually created a series of it. This is the complete series in season one. But um, All Dogs Go to Heaven, you meet Charlie the German Shepherd who, who goes to heaven because, hey, that's what dogs do. Only to find out how terribly bored he is up in the realm above because there are no cats to chase there since cats are in hell. And <laughs> I love my cat. But you get the idea, right? There's no cats to chase, and he complains that it's a, a, a terribly boring constant temperature of 73 degrees in heaven. And so one of the songs, the fantastic song that he sings in the movie, is how it's too heavenly up here. And he says, quote, it's too peaceful and paradise-like. Like, I prefer the excitement down below. So, you know, spoiler alert, he, he, ditches, <laughs> he ditches heaven for earth. Um, not to belabor the point, but whenever I can throw in a Gary Larson Far Side comic strip, it's it's always a good day. You know, the, here, here we have he just this guy just got there and he got his wings and he says, "I wish I brought a magazine." Um, yeah, you probably don't think of it nearly in those like boring banal terms, but by the same token, do you actually think of heaven consciously as an enthralling activity? As, as, do you think of your heavenly citizenship, as Paul talked about, as this thrilling, anticipatory experience that you sort of like, I can't wait for, I'm palpably excited for? And one of my kids, when they were younger, they said to me, I can't even remember who it was, but they said, Dad, I want Jesus to return when I'm 70 years old. I was like, okay, why, why 70? And she I can't even say it was she, because it could have been a he, but they said, they said, well, it's 70, you don't have anything else to look forward to in life. <laughs> right? And the whole, but that whole idea of like, like, we're guilty of that too. Like, there's so much more that I want to do in this life before I die, right? And heaven, well, that, that, you know, that can kind of wait, because whatever I'm going to do in this life is going to be way more fun than um, that anticipated experience. Heaven in the Bible is a tricky word. It, it refers to at least three reference. Number one, it can refer to the sky and space above us, that blue stuff. And then the, the they didn't know about you know actual space, but you know it's up there. Or it can refer to secondly, second usage, the place in the realm where God presently dwells. Is that a different dimension? Like there, there is some realm. There is some alternative dimension where Jesus and the angels and the saints who have gone before us, where they're at present. And then thirdly, it can refer to the new heavens and the new earth, a.k.a. the recreation of the universe that's going to take place when Jesus returns and he, you know, judges and vanquishes evil and transforms all that is good on this earth to eternally good. But we have this common lingo like, when we die, we go to heaven. Well, that's the second usage. Like, when we die, we go to the realm where God is presently at. Versus the lingo of when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, there will be a resurrection of our bodies. And that third usage, the recreation of earth into the realm where God dwells, is the one I'm mostly speaking about today. Four misconceptions about the return of Christ. I, I was showing a tremendous amount of restraint by only coming up with four, but... Four, number one, someone can predict the time of his arrival. Did you realize that the first prediction of Jesus was actually made by a very important, influential Christian in the third century by the name of Hippolytus? Hippolytus, he maintained that Jesus would, well, he believed that the, the, the universe and the world began in the year 5,500 B.C. 
And he believed that by looking at the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Old Testament, the golden you know, cherubim, and it held the, the Ten Commandments, et cetera, et cetera, that by looking at those dimensions, he would be able to, uh, to discern that Jesus would return 6,000 years after the beginning of the universe, which would put him on the ground here in 500 A.D. He missed it by just a few years, it sounds <laughs> right? More recently, though, like in 1948, when Israel was recreated as a nation state, um, there were a ton of Christian voices who basically said, Jesus is coming any, any day. Like, when Israel became Israel in the Middle East, as we know it right now, like, Jesus is going to be here any day now. And especially after 1967, the Six-Day War, when Israeli troops retook the old city of Jerusalem, like, people were like, it's happening any time um, the only catch is it, 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 it hasn't, and, and he hasn't. Matthew 24, verse 36, it seems pretty straightforward. You know, the passages in the Bible which say that no one knows when it will occur. But about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And yet, that has not stopped a bunch of guys from creating timelines and <laughs> trying to sell books. And it's just like over and over and over, like, please stop it. Because no, only the Father, he says, only the Father knows. Misconception number two, that Christ will definitely come during a time of cosmic upheaval, social disruption, and global chaos. Now, yeah, there are some verses in the Bible that may hint in that direction, but the, the simpler verses actually, they suggest just the opposite. As Aaron read a, a moment ago, Matthew twenty four thirty six again, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. Um, you know, it strongly suggests that people are just going to be carrying on ordinary life, blissfully unaware that, oh, the, the king of the universe is coming back. Um, unaware of any impending disaster. Number three, misconception number three, that it will happen this century, or, I'm cheating here, that it won't happen <laughs> this century. Here's some, another kind of funny thing about Christian language that uh, I, I've thought about, I shared with a couple of guys when we were hiking Camelback um, the other day. We usually refer to the first couple centuries of the church as early church history. But of course, that language is all taken from our vantage point of living in 2022. Like, if Jesus doesn't come back for another 25,000 years, then we are in early church history right now. We're the early church I mean, by that same, you know, rendering of time. Um, our language always seems to assume that it'll be a somewhat near return of Jesus, like sometime in this century, but like really... Who knows? I mean, who knows? My, my attitude is the way we should go about things is prepare to live and to love as though it could be any day, any time, but never presume that it, it will be this day. <laughs> like, prepare to live and to love and to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Like, it could happen any moment. What I love about the prayer that you used at the beginning of the service is it says, the line is, um, oh shoot, now I'm going to, I'm blanking it. Thank you. 
Yes, as we look for your coming among us this day, as we look for your coming among us this day, it's like that's the attitude. It's, I'm going to look for your coming among us this very day. You know, one of the ways that Jesus spoke about his return to his followers was, was simply like, stay awake, stay alert, don't be caught unaware. When your master returns, make sure he finds you doing the work that he gave you to do. Justice, care for the poor, love for the neighbor, worship with your brothers and sisters. Like, that's what, that's what he wants to find us doing whenever it is that he reappears. You know, okay, as I transition to how do we eagerly anticipate his coming, I do so just fully admitting that I don't do this very well. Um, from time to time, I will pray in my prayers, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And I would say on days where I'm like really struggling with depression and I'm feeling pretty low, I, I have found it helpful to basically say, Lord, you know what? Today would be a perfectly good day for you to return. You Maybe you prayed that too. And I find that I do anticipate, and I encourage others to anticipate his return when I'm talking with Christians who are, who are struggling with their, their bodies, their, their near death. Um, like I'm always you know, pressing them to focus on, on his coming. But here are three things that I'll press you to do that you may never have, um, have thought of to, to do before. I hope they're helpful. And again, it's not a comprehensive list, but number one, look to the east. In church history, the return of Jesus has always been associated with not the north, not the south, not the west, but the east. And we're not exactly sure why. It, it could be because elsewhere in Matthew 24, it speaks about how the Son of Man will return like lightning in the east. That's the language that he uses. Maybe that could be it. Or it could be because the sun rises in the east. And when you think about how, like, how the sun comes up and refreshes, like brings a new day and warms the earth. Like, what could be a better picture of the sun of, Christ, of God coming and shining first light upon the, this new world um, that he is creating? Whatever the reason, though, from very early on, very early on, Christians would associate the return of Jesus with the East. That's why, if you look um, architecturally, churches were built on the East-West axis, like actually like this of, of a sort, but they tended to be much more narrow, but the pulpit and the communion table would be in the east and the congregation would be in the west facing to the east. Uh, we know that in the second century, it was also cu customary for Christians when they prayed, they would, they would pray facing to the east. And then it's without question that when they died, when they buried their dead, they're, the dead were always buried with their feet pointed to the east so that when Jesus returned and th those, their bodies rose to meet him, they wouldn't have to like, do a 180. It was they were going to see him face, face to face. Oh, so you're saying that he's going to come in the east, Brad? Like that's a geographically definitive pronoun pronouncement? No. Um, because if you think about it, like if Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives outside of the city of Jerusalem, that's to our east as North Americans, but that's going to be to the west if you're in China or India. The whole idea of looking to the east, it just became both a mindset that they had, but also a way to embody that mindset, to sacralize that mindset in their in particular actions. And I, I think one of the things that, one of the ways I think we've gotten Christianity pretty wrong um, in our circles, in our American Protestant 
whatever are the, the words you're going to use to, to designate us, our tribe, is we have desacralized like almost all of, all of the faith. Like We don't make the sign of the cross, do we? we? We don't do anything with our hands. We don't pray in any certain directions. If you look at most of our, our church buildings, our sanctuaries, I mean, they look— there's nothing like uniquely holy or special or symbolic there. I mean, they, they tend to look like concert halls. I watched two other church services this morning. Um, the pastors in those services, they either wore flannel or they wore, <laughs> they wore sweaters, right? We've done away with any kind of like special garments or, and I'm not saying that we should have those, I, but I do think that there is room for the artists in the church and the, the really thoughtful people to figure out how do we go about embodying this thing that we deeply believe in? Because what we end up doing with our bodies you know, helps reinforce it like in our souls. Look to the east. Number two, look in the mirror. Oh, oh my. Because <laughs> normally what we see in the mirror is we don't like what we see in the mirror. It's unattractive. Very few of us have a positive body image, a positive facial image. I think I told you um, that I, I've always been self-conscious. I got my mom's nose, and they call it a Roman nose because you got this big bridge in the, in the middle of it. I've never liked my nose. And then, I mean, about five years ago, I started getting these basal cell carcinomas on my face from growing up in Arizona and not putting enough sunscreen on as a kid. And so they just start cutting. And I mean, even last summer, I, I didn't even anticipate it, but I had one taken off of my, my lip here. And he, the dermatologist didn't tell me that, oh, yeah, I'm going to cut you. And for the rest of your life, you won't be able to feel anything in your lip here. And your lip is just going to, like, droop. And so it was like one day I had a normal functioning lip. And then the next day I had a droop, droopy lip. And I feel it every day. And that's the funny thing about our bodies is either the parts of them that's unattractive or the parts that hurt or the parts that don't work work well, like you see and sense and feel those every single day. Do you ever look in the mirror, though, and just wonder what's the blueprint of your resurrected self inside of you? You may think about it, but like actually look in the mirror and ask that kind of question. I know that I don't. I know that we'd be better off if we did. First John 3, 2. Dear friends, right now we are children of God, yet what we will be hasn't taken place yet. But here's what we know. When Christ appears of the resurrection, then we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Our, our bodies are going to be transformed into these lustrously, exquisitely beautiful, immortal, creaturely bodies of which, of which we will be. And there will be a correspondence between like the you here and the you as it's recreated. Yes, but I love how one Christian author put it, like, if you could just see yourself in that day, it would be very bad for you right now because you'd be very tempted to fall down and actually worship yourself in that resurrected state. That's how exquisitely, lustrously incredible um, you will look like. And that's not something you normally see in the mirror now, is it? You know, one of my favorite parts of the World Cup is when they uh, sh show— a picture of a crowd of, um, uh, of uh, people watching a game. And like, it's in the streets of Argentina. And you've got like 3,000 people standing there. And all of a sudden, you know, the, they're just looking at the people. And then they score a goal. Messi scores a goal. And what happens? 
beers flying everywhere, <laughs> and everybody's dancing, and, and just, and I mean, there's just the, 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 the sense of like utter exuberance is the, is, is the very same thing that you're going to experience when you watch one of your brothers and sisters turn into, you know, come out of the cocoon and, and turn into what it is that the Father is making them to be. Um, I find that joy is far greater when it's your child who succeeds or your friend who succeeds. Or, you know, when, I mean, when you watch Major League Baseball and you got the mother and father there for the debut of their son, the first time he's ever played in a baseball game, and he hits, he gets his very first hit, and the mother and father and the family are just, they start crying normally because it's just so exciting that that's my kid and he just did it. Um, and that's what we're going to get to experience with each other when we watch, you know, one another transform. And it won't be just us. Like, imagine the joy of our Heavenly Father. Like, as joyful as it's going to be for us to experience these glorious bodies, you've got to think that the Father's joy will surpass all other joys of that day. Because, like, we're His special needs children down here, right? We, I mean, we just, we don't work right. It, we are so marred. We are so broken. We, we can't do our ABCs straight. We can't count to ten. Um, and he sees that, and like, like any father, his heart breaks over that. And what's going to happen is on that day, we'll be as healthy and as functioning as his own eternal son. Like he's going to get us, his children, made whole again. Could there be anything more exciting, you know, for our father? Yeah. Imagine the father's joy. When number two, you look in the mirror. Number three, look at the table. Uh, a few years ago, another research study was conducted to determine the happiest and unhappiest cities in the United States of America. The findings, I can't remember exactly what metrics they used, but the findings of this study was, were um, shocking, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, who would you get, where would you guess is the least happy city in America? That would be, I was kind of surprised by this, New York City. Because everything I've heard about New York, though I've never visited it, is that it's really cool, and you got to travel it and, and go to the Met a few years ago. And I've always, New York's one of the places I've always wanted to go. So I'm slightly surprised that New York was the, the least happy city. But what was shopping, shocking is the top five happiest cities. They were all located in the same state. And it wasn't California, and it wasn't Florida, and it wasn't the great state of Arizona. It was... Anybody hear this before? It wasn't Texas. It was Louisiana. And I thought, I've been to Louisiana. That place is an armpit of America, right? The top five cities were Lafayette, Houma, Shreveport, Alexandria, and Baton Rouge. Um, I've been to Louisiana a number of times. And my funniest Louisiana story is I was preaching one Sunday while I was in seminary at a church in Shreveport. Afterwards, I went to the Burger King that was situated right in front of the Independence Bowl, which is a football stadium, and I like that. And I, I go through the drive through I got a three-hour drive back to Jackson facing me. I'm hungry. And she says, you know, you, you can order whenever you're ready, but I regret to inform you that we have run out of meat. <laughs> and this is at Burger King. And so I'm like, well, what do you do then? <laughs> and I just drove, drove on. Um, what is it about those places that could account for such happiness? Because it's one of the poorest states, economically, educationally, behind all the rest. And here's what they found. 
Cajun culture, more than any other place in the United States, is a culture of feasting. Um, It's a culture of whole families and the entire community getting together and cooking great food and having great time. I mean, it's something that, like, I really appreciate about Latino culture is the the role of feasting and food in in Latino culture. Um, And I know that's true of other cultures around the world, but it's that ability to sit and to eat and to drink a lot of beer if you're in Louisiana and just celebrate life together. Um, look at the table. I think having the, the Lord's Supper every week is, is really important. And it's not simply because Christians have kind of always worshiped this way. And it's not because of some deep theological reasons, although there are those. But it's because this is a picture of the feast that is waiting for us. I just want you to imagine sitting at a banqueting table with billions and billions of people when the great Moses stands up and proposes a toast to the Lord. He's like, he clinks the glass and he says, here's to our great God who brought us through the Red Sea on dry, on dry ground. And a billion voices together say, hear, hear! And everybody takes a drink. And he goes on, I propose a toast to our great God who brought us into a land filled with milk and honey. Um, And on and on, you know, Moses goes recounting the faithfulness of God to him and his generation while billions of us clink our glasses together in ruckus praise. And then, then the great patriarch Abraham rises to address us and he says, friends, let me tell you a story. And he goes on like kind of an old grandpa to give us a first person account of of walking up um, Mount Moriah with his son Isaac and discovering a ram in the thicket so that he didn't have to sacrifice his son. And on and on, Abraham goes like a grandfather, telling riveting stories. Many of us, many of the stories we haven't even heard before, but all expressing joy in God's great faithfulness. And around that table is every culture, every nation, every, every tongue, every people. And so it's El Salvadorans and Moroccans and Senegalese who they start telling their stories. They're offering the toasts. The spontaneous songs and poems, we just keep moving down the line as people whom you have never met before stand up and tell great stories of God's faithfulness to them. And it's the happiest party of the year. (laughs) For the first million years after the resurrection, we will drink wine and we'll just tell stories of God's faithfulness. Um, Look at the table. Look in the mirror. Look to the east. You need to do it. East mirror table, um, because the waiting is hard, obviously. Waiting is very hard, especially when you don't know when something is going to happen. I find it a bit ironic that Christmas for children is kind of an event that can never get here fast enough. (laughs) A kid waiting for Christmas morning, he's just, I'm waiting forever. They just can't stand it, right? And in the same token, Christmas ends, ends up being a season where the parents, they just recognize that there are going to be many delays. Like if you're traveling in the airport or on the road or you're in the checkout out aisle, you're just going to have to wait and wait and sometimes really wait. Christmas is also a season when, you know, loneliness can just go out of control for us. The, the happiest season of the, wor- the year, the most joyous season turns out, you know, not to be the case. And when you're lonely, um, when you're struggling, time has a way of standing still. Um, Every minute seems to progressively lengthen. You know, you look at your watch and you can't believe that only five minutes have elapsed because life slows down to a crawl. The waiting is always the hardest part. And if that's you this morning, um, 
I'll finish with a story that, that's geared for you. So dad dropped off his uh, younger son on a street corner, and he told him he'd be back in 20 minutes after taking care of some business. He drives away, and unfortunately, as he is near his destination, the car breaks down. He doesn't have a, he has a cell phone, but his younger son doesn't have a phone that he can call him. Um, it ends up being five hours and during that time, the, the son just waits on the corner by a store the whole time. And, and the panicky father is like, I got to get back. I got to get it back. Well, the f- 11 o'clock at night rolls around and the father finally is able to get there. And he runs up and he hugs his son and he just says, I'm so sorry, son. I'm, I'm so sorry. To which the boy replied, um, what are you sorry about? You said you were coming. I can just see this kid like, um, you know, sitting there like with his kind of holding his legs like this and rocking back and forth and whistling a tune or playing with rocks in the gutter or just doing whatever it was that he could to, to pass the time. What are you sorry about? You said you're coming. He's coming. He's coming. It may take a while. We don't know when. It'll come unexpectedly, but he said he's coming. He is. And so let's be ready. Let's stay awake. Let's stay alert. Because you know what? He's bringing heaven to earth with him when he returns. Amen.